You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Welcome to First Christian Albuquerque. It's from this point on the planet that we gather to worship. And it's from this point on the planet we scatter to continue that worship out in our lives. And so we want to welcome you. Welcome you to First as followers of Jesus. That's who we are and that's what we're about. This morning, I invite you to think for a minute. What is your biggest battle? Currently, what's the thing in your life right now that is your most difficult battle? Is it a relationship? Is it taking place in your office space? Is it something bigger than that? Maybe it's an opportunity that you're hoping for and wanting and wishing for. Maybe it's something that you've been frustrated time and time again, that things are not going as you would have them to be. In fact, you might even feel helpless, powerless, to know what even to do next. Well, this might be a hard turn here, but the cartoon Dilbert, now, now cartoons, these are anime in one or two or three, sometimes four squares that are more funny. And Dilbert is the office character confined to these boxes. And uh, in this cartoon, someone's coming to be interviewed for a job and they slide their resume across the table to the interviewer. And the interviewer says, oh no, we don't do resumes anymore. That's kind of out of date. Let's just take a look online at what you've been up to, what you've been posting. And the person's horrified and says, I'll just show myself out. (laughs) Now that, that may not be your worst fear. That may not be the battle that's facing you. But that is something difficult that you're thrown in the middle of and wonder, is it going to get even worse than where I'm at? Right now, it it feels like our world is driven by fear, as if fear is the gasoline in the tank of what drives us right now. It's all that is the energy that's in the air. It's what moves us. And, you know, fear is sometimes gets a bad name. We, we, we like fear on occasion in proper context. We like to go to a, an amusement park or a carnival and be on a ride that terrifies us to an extent, yet we know we're still safe. We like to go into a haunted house like many of us will do next month and be scared because we know it's still safe, but we like that twist, that catch that, that turns us in a different direction. In fact, we we even like to tell stories, sometimes ghost stories, sometimes just stories from life that are traumatic. Those news clips, those events that are just so eye-catching, we can't turn away because they're captivating our attention. Maybe it's like this for you. Sometimes I feel like even prayer request time at church can be this. Who can give the more graphic, more difficult, more one-upped, issue that's going on that that needs to be prayed for, right? Well, it shouldn't surprise us that even in the entertainment world, our, our fears, things that surprise us, 
are used in the entertainment business to catch our attention. Time and time again, in current times, we're seeing these stories of the backstory of the villain, of how we might sympathize with them, what really is behind the scenes, or just what difficult, traumatic event that we could see as someone's life falls apart, right? We, we almost want to watch the crime drama, the, the horrific real-life story of how someone's life has fallen apart, and it's, it's like rubbernecking. Do you know what rubbernecking is? When you're on the highway and there's an accident and people rubberneck, they want to see what happened. And, and you slow down, causing probably other traffic accidents around you because everyone just can't look away. It's so bad that you just are irresistible and not able to being to turn away from it. Now, it might feel like this story that I've been telling you on these Sundays has felt like that. One bad thing to another bad thing on to the next bad thing. It goes from bad to worse. As we look at Moses, born in a time when he should have been killed even before he was born, and after he was born, executed along with many other children, and then raised in the palace with Egyptian royalty, only to flee off into the wilderness to be a shepherd in yet another country. It's a story that goes from bad to worse. Now, this story seems to get a little better. I'm going to invite you to read with me at the very end of chapter 4. Uh, I'm only going to read a few verses starting in Exodus 4:28. Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord had told him and sent him, and with all the signs with which he had charged him. And then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron spoke the words that the Lord had given to Moses and performed the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went up to Pharaoh and said, Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, so that we may celebrate a festival in the wilderness. This seems to be the point at which things turn, where things start to happen that are good. It's wonderful. You know, all these signs that, that God had given to Moses to convince him and say, no, you're really going to go. This Moses who had a spiritual experience in the wilderness that says, you're going back to Egypt, back where your people are enslaved, back where you were in Pharaoh's palace. You're going back. And he was going. He talked to his brother Aaron. Aaron believes the sign. He believes the word from Yahweh. They gather up the leaders. The leaders say, charge. You know, this is great. This, we can do this. And they bow down and worship. That was the sign that God gave. He said, you're going to know that this is going to happen, Moses, when you come back to this mountain, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, literally the mountain of the bush. When people come here and bow down and worship, you're going to know that I'm going to bring the people out of Egypt. And so they charge forward with all of this support, and they march right in to see Pharaoh, and they say, let my people go. Yahweh, I am that I am, the God of the Hebrews, says so. Well, let's read just a bit further. 
because we're about to see this battle. And today, all I'm going to give you are, are four things, four little captions on the pictures of this story. And the first one is this battle between Pharaoh and between God. And it gets queued up in verse 2 of chapter 5. But Pharaoh said, Who is this Yahweh Lord, that I should heed him and let Israel go? I don't know this Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he will fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to their labors. And Pharaoh continued, now they're more numerous than all the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but require for them the same quantity of bricks as they've made previously. All right, things were going well. Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, who the blank is Yahweh? I mean, that's literally what he says. I don't know this guy. Why should I pay any attention to him? And the battle's begun. Because Pharaoh is a god. He's Neter Nefer. He is the perfect god. In fact, this one, Amenhotep II, is Neter Ah, the great god. Why does he care about this unknown god? Can you imagine the audacity of coming into this god, this Pharaoh, and saying, we want to tell you about this unknown God of this slave group of people that work for you. He doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. And it's a chance for him to exert his authority. And that's exactly what he does. In verse 3, something can easily slip past us. And it's the second thing that I want us to catch. Not just this showdown between Pharaoh and Moses. But what Moses does when he's under pressure. Did you notice his words? He says, but it's the God of Israel, the God of Hebrews that we've seen in the wilderness, and he sent me to you. And if you don't let us do this, he will call us to have pestilence and be killed by the sword. Uh, I don't remember that part. Do you remember that part? In chapter 3, in chapter 4. Do you remember any of this part where God is going to inflict pestilence on his own people or kill them by the sword? Here's what's happening. Moses is using a threat against Pharaoh. He is using fear to threaten Pharaoh. And it doesn't work because Pharaoh is God. And we learn very quickly that this God in and of himself, Pharaoh, has no interest in following what's being commanded. I think we learn something from this, or Moses could learn something along with us, that leadership that's driven by fear fails. It does not work, right? That whenever leaders manipulate and use threats and use fear, it does not work. That is a true thing. But who else uses fear? 
Pharaoh uses fear. The rest of this story, this same day, Pharaoh inflicts harsher workloads on the people. No longer are we going to give you straw. You make the same number of bricks and you get your own straw. He levels down the blows and shows his power as a God who could act. Not like this ineffective Hebrew God that the Hebrew people and the Hebrew leaders have seen is not effective. He calls them lazy, a perfect character flaw that's often used by those at the top of the pyramid of power to insult, wow, they're just lazy. You can't find good minimum wage slaves anymore. They won't work. They sleep on the job. They're always asking for a holiday. Labor Day holiday? I'll show you a Labor Day holiday. You labor on Labor Day. How many of you are having to labor on Labor Day? Yeah, that's what I thought. So Pharaoh levels this down and he turns to the Egyptian taskmasters and says, keep these quotas going. So that falls down the chain. Bad news travels quickly. Okay, let's beat the Hebrew taskmasters. What? How are we supposed to keep up with these? And on it goes. And the people at the bottom, the base, those that hold up this tower of power are the ones with no voice, the ones who must scatter and gather straw and go and make their quotas. The bad news travels up and down. Up because they begin to complain. Up. That's what you do. You complain to those above you. And they complain to Pharaoh and say, well, what's going on? Why are we doing this? Why? Why? And then they run across Moses and Aaron. After learning that their quotas are going to be the same, they find these two that came in the name of Yahweh. And what they say in chapter 5, verse 21 is, may God judge you. It's almost too strong for me to say. But what they say is the worst of all. God damn you, Moses and Elijah. Whoa. There's a lot of foul language in this story. A lot of rough things are said here. And so, with all of this weight from the one who says, I am God, do what I say. Maybe something that we've experienced before from a boss or from a coach or from a teacher. You keep producing. You trust the system. Trust me at the top of the pyramid of power and the system will work. And here, it only works for Pharaoh. What Pharaoh's doing is dividing and conquering them, getting them to where they are at war with one another. And it works. When I was growing up, teachers and parents would tell me, if you've got a big task, divide and conquer. And that, that was the most positive spin that one could put on that where you take a big task, you break it into smaller parts. This is different from that. This is a military term. Julius Caesar talked about divide and conquer, a Latin term. And here, it's about dividing and ruling. If you separate the people up, if you break them into parts, they're easier to rule. Philip II of Macedon, same way. He used this practice to manipulate, to create fear, and to advance his military and advance his position, to achieve what he wanted, the power of breaking things into pieces. And he used it in war, and he, he used it in diplomacy, and he even used it in marriage. Machiavelli, 
in his art of war describes what this is like in the art of war that you divide up your enemy and you create suspicions mistrusts among the troops in their supervisors so that they will not follow orders so that they will war with one another and it will create this leadership vacuum where what's needed is a strong powerful leader to come in and tell them what to do the british and other colonizers used this to separate countries india from pakistan to divide and conquer and keep people apart separate creating infighting and making it to where a leader that's powerful was needed pharaoh knows what he's doing and that's exactly what plays out where these supervisors are frustrated with moses and aaron and they say, you made us stink like diapers that didn't get taken out of the garage on trash day. No, worse than that. You have stretched our necks out for, to be cut by a knife, and you've handed Pharaoh the knife for him to do us in. And they turn on their heels, and in a cloud of dust, leave Moses alone. There he is again just trying to do what God called him to do. Talking didn't work, separating, fighting, Hebrews didn't work, murdering an Egyptian who was killing it. All of these things haven't worked, and he stuck. Which brings us to the third thing that I'm wanting you to hear. Something about God's timeline. God's timeline is not always immediate and prompt. And yet, in this, God receives Moses' complaint, where Moses complains to Yahweh and says, why are you mistreating these people? Why are you doing evil to these people? So that Pharaoh is doing evil to us. Now think about that blasphemy. More foul language continues. God, you're doing evil to your own people. They don't listen to me anymore. Verse 9 of chapter 6, the people close their ears because their spirit is broken from their slavery, and they're tired of it, and they're ready to give up. I think Moses expected this to end quickly, don't you? I think if he were actually writing this story, he thought this all ends in Exodus chapter 5, all done. What he thought was just one movie becomes a mini-series. What he thought was a news clip becomes a multi-night documentary. This is going on much longer than what he planned. And God had warned him. He'd warned him in chapter 3 that Pharaoh is not going to be responsive to this. You know, sometimes we feel cornered in our lives. And we've had events like this that have cornered us over these last many months, where COVID seems to have pushed us to a, to a corner. But sometimes in those corners, when we're really put to the test, some of our best things happen, like launching five new groups, right? Like launching online ministries, reaching out to people that are beyond what we can see in, in this space. Sometimes it takes being pushed into those corners to where our trust really can happen. It's not just about making a request and then being released. Sometimes we get stuck in the middle waiting for God to show up and do. And it's at those times that we're driven to our knees in prayer, which is where Moses finds himself again, having a very honest 
and pointed conversation with God. And God steps into that to give us the fourth thing today. Not just about his timeline sometimes being slower than ours. Not just about please don't use fear to get the results that you want. And not just about this battle between what seems to be powerful in Pharaoh calling himself God and the battle of God. But this final one of knowing God. The knowledge of God. Or the fear of God. Where we trust God and respect God that his promises are going to come true. At this point where Moses is at, he can no longer trust his own power. Maybe he did with those signs, trust his own power. Maybe he did with those own words or with Aaron as his backup. Trust that they would be able to do it in one conversation with Pharaoh. At this point, it will be clear that it's only by the power of God so that all the glory will go to God. It's at this point that God again gives his promises, asserts his identity. I am who I am. That's what God's name means. I will be what I will be. And the good news of this story stretches out over hundreds, if not thousands of years. I'm the God who showed up at dinner and told Abram, the old man, he was going to have a kid, and he did. And I showed up with Isaac, and when Isaac switched his blessing and blessed the younger child, I worked through that child. And when I wrestled with Jacob by the river Jabbok and changed his name to God Wrestler, I'm still working on my promises of providing land and giving this group of people the community and the God that would rule them forever and ever. Sometimes all we have are God's promises. And sometimes that has to be enough because God is much bigger than us. In chapter 6, verse 6, God will be the deliverer. God will be the redeemer also in verse 6. You will be my people forever and ever, verse 7. God is at the top of our triangle of power. And the only fear that we're to have is the fear and respect and the trust of turning to this God, of instilling not practices of fear, not being obsessed with our own failures, not thinking about the timing that we think it ought to happen for us, but the respect and the fear and the trust that goes directly to God. I mean, isn't that what we've been learning over these last several weeks? Of trust being greater than or equal to our fear? We've learned about we as a group of people have a different kind of fear. We respect God. We're a group of people that, that when we hear God calling, we don't run away. We don't try to take things into our own hands like Moses, but we respond to that call as people who are following God, following Jesus. Or even in those moments when we feel that call like a burning bush from God. And yet we feel quite heavily all of our weaknesses, all of the things within us that are not going as we would want. We don't let those weaknesses keep us from trusting, fearing, and turning toward God. Here in this story, we've learned just today about this, about this being a battle for our very lives, a battle for who we will trust the most. 
a battle for understanding that you can't use fear effectively. Moses can try, we can try to use threats and fear and intimidation, but ultimately it won't work. It doesn't work compared to the trust of following God. It won't get the results. We've learned that timing, oh timing, something that we know, cannot be on our own terms. But what God calls us into is this great theme of Exodus of knowing God. The Pharaoh who says, I don't know this God, will see how he ebbs and flows, how he goes up and down, a pretending, perhaps being sincere, but wanting to know who God is. We will learn what it is to know and fear God. Next week when we look at this story, we're going to dive deeply into the battle between these two gods. We're going to look at how we face off against the battles in our own lives. But for now, for now we trust God's timing. We trust the knowledge of God. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we're all in a spiritual battle of trust. And we have a lot of people that invite us to be afraid of many things. Would you help us, God, to be faithful people who are not afraid, but who are wise, who are not drawn into making medical things, party things, who are not drawn into to making things that we can fight about and grumble about and complain about, who are not even drawn into using fear and intimidation to get our point across. Father, help us to be a people that releases this battle back to you. It's your battle. It belongs to you. Let it go from our hands so that we can hold to you in deep and abiding trust, confident that you hold us and the future. We pray all this through the mighty powerful name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God now and for all times. Amen.